All right, everyone, uh, if you would, open your Bibles to uh, Romans chapter 9. It's on page 945 in the Pew Bible. And um, today we wrap up our four-part sermon series on evangelism titled Messengers of Grace, Sharing the Good News. And today, listen, we're actually going to enter into deep waters of biblical doctrine. And because of that, we have lifeguards on duty this morning. Wait, production says no. Okay, no lifeguards. you got to help each other, okay? Uh, our passage is long, and we're going to take it in pieces. Let me first pray, and then we'll begin in earnest, okay? Father in heaven, in many ways, there's things about you that we can know so well, things about we, you that we are so, so certain of, like your love, your mercy, your ability to forgive and forgive and forgive, the kingdom that has come and the heaven that awaits all who trust in Christ. Today we look at some perhaps challenging topics, but in the end you bring it all together and it's marvelous to our eyes. It helps us to be beautiful feet on this earth proclaiming your good news for your glory. Help us to that end, we pray. Amen. I have a friend who has a very important uh, responsibility at his, at his company. He's a partner at the famous Wall Street firm, Goldman Sachs, and he heads up an investment banking team that focuses upon the transportation industry, so think airlines and car companies and trains and shipping companies and all that. On any given day, roughly 200 to up to 300, 400 uh, analysts and and his support team, they, they juggle the immense needs of their worldwide clients. They depend upon Goldman Sachs' expertise. One evening we were hanging out at his home outside and he used an illustration of a spear to, de, to um, describe the work of his team and himself. See, whenever a client has some sort of pressing issue like a last minute takeover opportunity, his team works around the clock with um, completely focused on trying to deliver to their client the very best possible outcome. And to use my friend's term, he refers to them as being the shaft of the spear. My friend says, though, as the key leader of the team, his role is that of the tip of the spear. There are hundreds of people who support uh, the client by working behind the scenes, but the client expects him, my friend, to be there. He says, I'm the face of Goldman Sachs to them. I'm the one who needs to present to my client face to face. My role is tip of the spear. Once my friend was telling me the story of uh, how often he's just got to travel all the time. He flies to Texas and then London and then Shanghai and Detroit and he once told me that uh, the president of an airline company in China, they were about ready to get listed on the stock exchange, and the president said, I would really like for you to be there, which meant, of course, gotta go. He couldn't send a subordinate, no, they, they expect the tip of the spear. So my friend got on an airplane, threw, flew for 30 hours, got off, went to the stock exchange, watched the president ring the bell, shook his hand, got back on a plane, and flew. 30 hours back home. Oh, by the way, they don't pay overtime at Goldman Sachs. 
To be the tip of the spear is exhilarating, glorious, and deeply satisfying, but it is also, at times, difficult and monotonous. In our passage this morning, Paul says that we Christians have a most beautiful and glorious calling to be as like a tip of a spear, so to speak, as the gospel goes out into this world. God has given us a calling to be the feet of those who deliver good news into this fallen world. And it is the absolute best reality we could ever experience in our lives. In chapter 10 of our passage, verse 15 states, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, when you live out this calling, you get to be at the tip of God's spear in a world of darkness. You get to be right in the midst of all that God is doing here on earth. So my hope by the end of our time here this morning is that we will come to this reality, that that this calling is far greater than anything you could be doing on earth. To be the ones at the very center of what God is doing on earth. That's us. So let's try to get there. The main proposition for us this morning is this. Because in God's eyes, those who evangelize are a beauty to behold. Let us be those who spread the good news. We'll divide our time under three headings. Three headings, not two like the last three or four weeks. Uh, God's sovereignty. Oh boy. Man's responsibility. What's that? Uh, And our place of beauty. First, God's sovereignty. What is the sovereignty of God? Now, the word sovereign is often used to describe kings and queens. They're they're sovereign over their lands. They are the supreme word. Whatever they decree becomes law. Now, God is sovereign, listen, to the nth degree. When we say that God is sovereign, we're saying that everything in the universe, seen or unseen, is under his glorious control. When Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Like, they're really cheap. And not one of them will fall from the ground apart from your father. Jesus is saying that nothing happens upon earth that God isn't sovereign over. Now, the area of God's sovereignty that we're going to be, that is highlighted in our passage today, is that is what is called God's sovereign election. God's sovereign election or his divine election means that God elects or chooses those whom he saved. Water's starting to get deeper, isn't it? Paul delights in God's election at the beginning of his letter to the church in Ephesus. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God predestines those whom he adopts. He elects according to the purpose of his will. In our text, Paul references God's sovereign election in verse uh, 11 in chapter 9, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. There's got to be lots of questions, and thankfully, Paul knows this. Uh, He's writing to this church. He knows they're going to have questions, and of course, we have questions, and so he answers them. The first question is this. How can people who believe this sleep at night? See, if God chooses whom he saves, then he must also not choose someone else. 
So a question people have is, if you believe this nonsense, how can you actually sleep at night? Paul's answer is, I actually can't sleep at night, but it's still true. Let's look. Verse 1, chapter 9. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong all the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You know, there are many who are critical of the biblical doctrine of election, even some Christians, and they'll ask, how can you sleep at night? Paul says, he can't sleep at night, but it's still true. See, do you understand what Paul is saying? Paul is saying he wishes he could go to hell so that none of his fellow Israelites who have not yet believed would have to. No, I don't know about you, but over the years I've asked myself, Mark, is there anyone on earth that you would swap places in heaven to go to hell for them? And I'm sorry, I can't think of a single person. How about you? What does this all mean? Paul is bringing to the forefront the absolute reality of divine election. He's confirming that the truth that God sovereignly chooses some and not others isn't a truth that is easy to receive. Listen, predestination boggles our mind. And understand this, if you're someone who adamantly disagrees, disagrees with God's sovereignty, I get it. I was there too until I read the R.C. Sproul book. R.C. Sproul himself describes his own struggle when he wrote, the built-in resistance to the sovereignty of God's grace found its root in my soul. Not until I was exposed to a careful treatment of Romans 9 was I brought, kicking and screaming against my will, to initial acquiescence to this doctrine of God's sovereignty. All this to say, coming to understand and receive the biblical teaching that God's sovereign election is true, it's, it's hard for us to receive. But listen, just because a biblical truth is hard to swallow doesn't mean that the truth is untrue. The next question Paul addresses is, why some and not other? For instance, I've shared the gospel with my brother John. He's a very smart guy. He went to Princeton and then Stanford. So like, why, why doesn't he believe? It's like so simple. Why isn't that my brother is yet to trust in Christ? After I've shared with him numerous times, I mean, very winsomely, right? Paul is addressing a similar question in the, in the next section. Now recall, the book of Romans is written mostly to Jewish uh, converts to Christianity in the great city of Rome. And they, many in the church were wondering, why is it that the nation of Israel, who received all these blessings upon blessings from God, why is it that so many, in fact, most of the Jews in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, why, why did their family members fail to receive the Messiah? And in the next section, Paul answers that it's not that God's word has failed, nor that all of your wonderful efforts to share the gospel with your loved ones has failed. They reject Christ because they're not part of God's elect. Paul ex explains this truth through two stories that should be familiar to you, the story of Abraham uh, and Sarah and their two sons. 
and then the story of Isaac and Rebekah and their two sons. Remember, Abraham and Sarah didn't, did not wait for the promise of God for a son. Instead, Sarah had Abraham lie with the housemaid, and she bore a son named Ishmael. But Ishmael was not the promised son. The promised son was Isaac, who was born later. Paul also recounts the story of Isaac and Rebekah to illustrate how God elected the younger son over the older son. They elected Jacob over Esau. Let's read the text, verses 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. All right? And not all are children of not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. A couple of germane points. Abraham had two sons, but only one, the child of promise, was chosen by God. Ishmael is not in heaven. And two, God chose Jacob for salvation over his older brother Esau. Why? Middle of verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. God elected Jacob, but not Esau. And third, God does not look into the future and see who's going to be good and choose them. That is what some Christians think. They misinterpret Paul's words in, in Romans little, in chapter 8, where you read that God, those whom God foreknew, he predestined. People mistakenly define foreknowledge as God just knowing beforehand. <laughs> God, God looks into the future and see who's just smart enough to believe, and then, well, then he chooses them. When the Bible speaks of knowing, it is most importantly understood as knowing in a relational sense, right? Adam knew Eve, and they talked a lot about Wordle. No, she bore a son, relational, knowing. All throughout the Bible, to know incorporates the reality of love. Again, as Paul quoted, as I quoted Paul in Ephesians 1, in love, God predestined us. The word for know, and we've got to take our own English, like dividing things up and saying, well, no means this and no beforehand. No, to foreknow means of God's eternal divine loving delight that he has for the elect before the foundations of the world, not based upon anything anyone ever did, but just purely upon his own decisions and loving choice. In our passage, Paul drives home this truth. See, if you recall the kind of person Jacob was, you wouldn't expect him to be elect, right? 
Jacob was a conniving, cheating mama's boy who stole Esau, Esau's birthright and inheritance from him. It wasn't until God went after him and chased him down and wrestled with Jacob that his miserable excuse for a life was saved by God's grace. And I look at my own life and I'm like, yeah, that was me too. Which is why Paul writes in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Let that sink in. What he's saying is... God didn't base his election upon what you and I do, whether we're a little bit better than our brother or sister, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And then he repeats it, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Before they were born or had done anything right or wrong, God elected Jacob. We don't know why, but not Esau. We don't know why. It was not because of good works of Jacob. It was purely God's sovereign choice. The waters are getting deep. Does anybody need a life like this? Yeah. Listen, no human knows how or why God chooses. We only know that that he does, and it's not based on anything that we have done. God doesn't look into the future to see who's going to be the good little boys and girls and believe. No, God elects, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Listen, Christian, you have come to believe because in eternity past, God foreknew you with this loving, divine, relational grace, and he chose to lavish you with mercy and grace. And then one day, he began to call you. And you came to believe because it was the work of the Spirit of God upon you, not by works that you may boast. By grace, you've been saved. Now, most who think about God's sovereign election tend to conclude, well, that's just not fair, right? Verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? (laughs) Is God unfair? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I have compassion. So it depends not on the human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If you're a parent or school teacher, no doubt you find yourself perpetually haunted by the cries of the kids. That's not fair. In a Huffington Post article titled, It's Not Fair. The author argues, here's what she says, as common and grating as the phrase is, parents never figure out why it doesn't go away. Their response is to use logic. Upon hearing the cry, mom uses logic explaining why something is fair. Oh yes, it is fair, because you got to go first last time, and now it's Billy's turn. It doesn't compute, and the child retorts, but it isn't fair. 
Next, a parent lets her child know the sad reality that life isn't fair. The problem with this response is that the child is unhappy and can't get beyond that feeling. And telling a child that life isn't fair has zero meaning for that six-year-old who doesn't have much life experience under his belt. For us here today, the funny and sad reality is, even those of us who have lived much life, we still say, that's not fair. See, God is sovereign and we are not. God decides upon who will receive compassion from him and who will receive what? Justice. And through it all, God is fair. R.C. Sproul presents this illustration in one of his commentaries. Follow along, if you will. If there are 10 people who are guilty and God sovereignly decides to pardon one of them and sentence the other nine, who has received an injustice? In other words, they're all guilty, right? The nine who are sentenced received what they deserved, the punishment for their sins. The nine received justice. The one received mercy but none received injustice. You follow that? Now, just one more question to address. How is it that God allows millions of people to be born who will never believe, and yet God still finds fault with them? Why do this? Paul's response is that God is the glorious potter who does with human clay that which he wishes to display his glory. Verses 19 through 23. You will say to me then, <laughs> why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man? He turns the question back to answer back to God. Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for, prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? The question then is, why then does God allow people to be born, live and die, who never could come to faith? Paul says it's because God is a potter. We're the clay. Listen, one of the most important truths you can ever allow to inform your life is that you are merely clay in the potter's hand. And so if you think to yourself, my God would never create a world in which people live, die, apart from any hope, my God is an equal opportunity God. If you find yourself thinking this, try to remember you're the clay and God is the potter. Instead, think to yourself, what if? What if God, desiring to make known the riches of his glory, decided to lavish some with mercy and some who deserve wrath and destruction? What if God is far bigger and better than I ever imagined? We're asking the wrong question. Now, all this discussion on God's sovereignty is meant to prepare us for the next point, man's responsibility. 
Mankind's responsibility has to do with how each person is responsible to believe the gospel. Now, I hope you're seeing a conundrum here. It is illuminated by the question, if God is sovereign over his election of his chosen people, then how on earth can anyone be held responsible for not believing the gospel, right? And then why even share the gospel with them? It's a good question. See, God's sovereignty and our responsibility to believe, they don't seem compatible. Like They're like oil and water and fire and ice and cats and dogs and uh, like Travis and Taylor. <laughs> All right, it'll sink in. It'll drop. It'll go, oh, yeah, football. Travis Kelsey. Uh, they don't seem compatible. But let me try to demonstrate how both are true. God is sovereign, and people are responsible. First, let's see how Jesus thinks on this topic. The first item for us to consider is this. Listen, the gospel is not a suggestion to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. Remember the very first words of Jesus in Mark's gospel in chapter 1, verse 15, 14 15. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, tip of the spear, there he is, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The words repent and believe are not suggestions. Jesus expects people to obey and believe. The verb tense of repent and believe is, is in the imperative. Imperatives are commands, like when mom says to her child, clean up your room. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. The gospel is a command. You understand that? Repent and believe. And if you're a Christian here, you've obeyed the gospel. That is why Paul writes further down in chapter 10, verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. My point is this. Both Jesus and Paul proclaim the good news with the expectation that people must obey. And so follow the logic here. If the gospel is a command to be obeyed, then mankind is responsible to obey. And you see where we are? God is sovereign, and mankind is responsible. The second point from Jesus' words to consider is this. In spite of this, Jesus freely offers the gospel. Now, what do I mean by freely? Well, Jesus didn't think in his head, hmm, there's some here in this giant crowd of 5,000 people who are the elect, and so I'm just going to pull them aside and share the gospel with them. No, he preached to everybody. But he also knew that there's a chance. He knew that most would not be elect, but also he knew that some would be. He knew some would receive the gospel and obey. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, Sally spoke a bit out of it earlier uh, when she read from John chapter 6. It's on page 891 if you open your Bibles. John chapter 6, 891. This chapter begins with Jesus uh, feeding, teaching a huge crowd of 5,000 people. Then he departs across the lake. He walks on water. Um, then the next day, the crowds are like, where did Jesus go? I'm still hungry. So they go over the sea, and they found Jesus, but Jesus knows their hearts. They just want more bread, and they want to maybe see a couple miracles. Wow, did you see that? You know, <laughs> Jerusalem's got talent, right? Um, and so in verse 26, he calls out to them for following him, after him, only for free bread. Then they ask for a bread sign from heaven. 
Hey, Jesus, Moses gave our forefathers manna from heaven. How about, how about you do that for us too? We want to see something. And in verse 35, Jesus famously declares to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Beautiful words. You see what Jesus is doing? He is freely offering the gospel. Come to me and believe. But also notice, he knows that many listening would never come. Why? Because he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There it is. Jesus knows of his Father's sovereign election. And so the huge crowds argue with Jesus. And again, in verse 40, Jesus offers the gospel again. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Some people who don't believe in sovereign election will say, see, see, uh, you know, God wants everybody to believe, but no, the point is Jesus is freely offering them the gospel, and he's going to raise them up on the last day. But the reality is this, the crowds couldn't believe what? They couldn't believe that they weren't already saved because they were Israelites, right? They had all the promises, all the, the stuff that Paul's talking about in Romans 9 and 10. And so beginning in verse 43, Jesus repeats himself. Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus keeps talking about God's sovereign election and of him being the bread of life, the true bread from heaven, that everyone must eat. You must chew on Jesus, he says. And then in verse 60, that those that follow Jesus from town to town, people that consider themselves to be disciples of Jesus, they said this, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Maybe some of you here thinking thinking the same things. This is a hard saying. Only those who the Father has called to Jesus will come to him. In that very moment, listen, that's when the huge crowds stopped following Jesus for good. And later, the the disciples, they they were shocked that so many people stopped following Jesus from that day on. And so again, Jesus says in verse 65, look there. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. It doesn't get more simple than that, my friends. And then after this, men, you know, so here we go. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. This is verse 66. So Jesus said to the disciples, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. My friends, look at that. Jesus lived his life at the very tip of the spear, in the chaos of God's sovereign election and mankind's necessity to obey and believe, he was there in the midst of it. And his feet were beautiful. We'll get to that later. 
Listen, Jesus freely shares the gospel just like we're supposed to do. But he also knows that unless God has granted and enabled the listener by the work of the Holy Spirit, they will reject the bread of life and the living waters. Jesus believed in divine election and he freely offered the gospel to everyone. That is where Paul takes us in chapter 10. Paul knows what Jesus knew that the gospel must be freely offered so that those who are elect can hear it and believe it and be saved. We're not going to read all of verse of chapter 10. We're going to skip down to verse 9. That's your cue. Skip down to verse 9. There we are. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the free offer of the gospel. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him, that's Jesus, will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches upon all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Look, God is sovereign over all, and the Lord bestows riches upon all who call on him. We need to let that sink in. We human beings have a responsibility to call upon the name of Jesus, to confess and believe. Perhaps some of you here need to do that for the very first time. Confess. Your life is more messed up than you ever thought. The Holy Spirit is telling you you're you're not getting to heaven based on your good works. You need a call from God. This is your time to listen. Receive the call. Believe in Christ. Obey the gospel. So listen, this is a both and, right? This is one of those things where both are true and, right? God is both sovereign over salvation and people need to be offered the gospel freely. This is not Mark Middlecoff's idea. That's my last name. Uh, This is what scripture teaches. Yes, I know, many, many Christians have a hard time accepting the sovereignty of God and the need to freely offer the gospel. They they don't think it squares up. But in the pen of Paul and from the lips of Jesus, it's true. I told you we're going to get into some deep waters here. I'm not asking you to, like, say, okay, I totally get it right now, right? I'm not saying it's all crystal clear in your mind. It's not in mine either. This is like, John Calvin said that he, like, when you look at predestination, good luck, Right? He's got like 50 pages on it. And he's, at the beginning of it, he says, we're, we're entering into deep territory here. We need to be humble. So we looked at God's sovereignty and mankind's responsibility now for our position of beauty. This is going to go really quick. All right, covered a lot of ground. Now we're ready for the final assembly. Have you ever, ever seen like a, an automobile manufacturing plant where they got like two lines going? And you got the... You got the uh, body, you know, all assembled, rolling down the line as things are getting added to it. Then you got the frame with the engines and the wheel, and they go down the line right next to each other, and then, then the body is placed on the frame and bolted down, and it's driven off. Well, that's what we get to do right now. We're going to drive a new vehicle home today. Okay, no new vehicles, but you get my point. So here's how it all comes together. You remember my friend who said his Life at Goldman Sachs was as like the tip of the spear, how he gets to be in the midst of all that chaos to present a wonderful solution to help a company succeed. Well, Christian, you and I have a beautiful calling to live life at that tip of the spear as we live in the confluence, right, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Confluence is a great word to describe this. You know what confluence is, right? 
I'm from St. Louis, and so St. Louis has two of the largest rivers in America. They meet right there, the mighty Mississippi River and the Missouri River. Uh, and, and by the way, the Missouri River is actually 20 miles longer than uh, the Mississippi River. Just ask Lewis and Clark and Pocahontas. They'll let you know. Where two rivers come together is called a confluence. Two streams become one. Christian, as ambassadors for Christ, we talked about that last week, we get to herald the good news right smack dab in the middle of the chaos at the confluence between God's sovereignty and mankind's need to hear the gospel. We get to live this out. And when we do, it's beautiful delight in God's eyes. Therefore, it should be also true for us in our eyes. Paul speaks of the beautiful life in verse 14 through 17. Look at this. How then will they call on him, Jesus, in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? I'm thinking about our work in Kurdistan where we're going to plant churches there. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. How beautiful are the feet that preach good news. I don't know about you, but I've, I've lived a few years on earth. I've yet to see a foot that I'm like, wow, look at that. That's beautiful, right? <laughs> look at that beautiful foot. And by the way, have you ever noticed, like, there are no male foot models? Just saying Paul is quoting from the book of Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Right before the service, um, Tom shared that he had shared the, uh, invited someone to uh, Christianity Explored. And after he said that, I, I looked down and I was like, wow, look how beautiful those feet are, right? And um, we celebrated, right? All right. He's like rolling his eyes. Yeah, that's... The rest of the people in the room are like, what is he doing? <laughs> All right. Um, as we conclude, I, I want us to try to wrap our heads around our beautiful calling to be those who spread the good news. Christian, I want you to take a moment to think where God has placed you. Try, try to fathom why it is beautiful in his eyes. You and I get to be in the most thrilling position at the confluence of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We get to live on mission with God, alive in his Holy Spirit, bringing to a lost and hurting world the beautiful gospel of our Lord Jesus. How are they to believe unless they hear it? How are they to believe unless someone is sent? That is us. My friends, look, we have the words of salvation. We are God's chosen salt and light in a decaying and dark world. We are Christ's ambassadors, and we are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. We carry with us God's offer of reconciliation. We pronounce into a hostile world that the Prince of Peace has come. When we live beautiful lives at the confluence of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, we are the tip of the spear, and there is no other. 
We are the tip of the spear that separates the sheep from the goats, the redeemed from the rebels, eternal life from eternal death. That's us. My friends, when you think it through, there's no greater place to be. There's no greater calling. There is no more exciting work you could ever do, even if you're a partner at Goldman Sachs. Sorry if you're watching. Do you understand? Like, is it sinking in? Do you delight in this? I mean, Grace Church, this is our calling, right? We have the beautiful feet that the world needs. And so if someone asks you one day, do you want to be the first person to, to walk on the Mars, you know? Say, no, thanks. I got far more exciting work to do. I deliver the very words of God that give eternal life to the elect, and I don't know where they are, and I get a lot of rejection. But oh my, when God places someone in my life and the scales begin to fall from their eyes as the Spirit of God breathes new birth into them, there's nothing that compares to that. For you see, angels in heaven, they crane their necks looking down to see what I do every day. For they rejoice, and they rejoice in heaven over God's work in me when one sinner repents and obeys the gospel. So let someone else be the first one to set foot on Mars. For I have beautiful feet, and they're meant to walk on this earth for God's glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you when these two seemingly opposite truths are brought together from Jesus' lips and from your truth of Scripture and how we see just how important it is, how beautiful it is when we, your people, understand this, that the gospel does go out, that your people that you have predestined for adoption before time even began, they're here on the East End. They're in northern Iraq where we're planting churches. They're all around the world. We don't know who they are. And we're going to face rejection. People are going to think our feet are ugly. <laughs> but we don't live in the court of worldly opinion. We live in the court of your heavenly opinion. And you love us in Christ Jesus. And you have made us to be beautiful so that we can be beautiful as we live out and share out message. Repent and believe. Let's pray.